Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another week here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. This episode starts the first of a two-part series with Australian horsewoman, Ali Heenan. Ali is a major in the Australian Army and has exemplified true leadership throughout her military career. What's incredible in this episode is despite all that she has accomplished in her military career, the horse has added value to her leadership style, which has provided her life purpose and direction and the fulfillment of helping others. Should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us both on Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. We hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is our first episode with Major Ali Heenan. Uh, well, over here, it's certainly very different to this time last year. This time last year, we already had numerous fires around the country and uh, the Christmas break, which is normally when everyone has a rest, was kind of the opposite with everyone closely monitoring fires and getting ready to evacuate from various locations and mm-hmm. no idea where the fires were going. Uh, whereas this year is very different. We actually are having a lot of rain with sunny days in between and grasses popping up everywhere. And instead of struggling to find feed for our horses, we're now struggling trying to keep them off too much of the green grass so it's yeah (laughs) it's it's very very different but i'd certainly raised that we had that went for oh about six months over christmas new year last year so yeah we're just uh much nicer we're coming out of i mean we're still kind of in fire season here and uh we burned gosh i think we're over two million acres collectively two and a half million acres in the state um to be yeah. honest, I don't really know what the specific number is. It, it, it's vast, vast land that's burned. Um, for these fires that occurred in Australia, what was the topography in which was burned? I mean, you guys have huge grasslands and things of that sort. Is that what it was born and through? Or? Yeah, a lot. So I'm down near Canberra and south of me where I've got a little bit of property as well is the Snowy Mountains region. Um, and a lot of that burnt last year um, and eucalypts go up like wildfire and um yeah all of the snowy mountains sort of burnt right across and we had fires on both sides and they merged in the middle and created these mega fires um but we had it right up the coast and there were some pretty scary maps that you saw when they showed where the fires actually were around australia and it just looked like the whole whole map was covered in fire except for central australia where it's desert and there's nothing to burn so there's nothing there that's it. You're like, maybe we should all move to the desert in the middle and move away from, <laughs> move away from the beautiful beaches on the coast that everyone's drawn to. Yeah, it's it's all scary stuff. And obviously, we have pretty active fire season every year. Uh, so yeah. we try to do the best that we can to keep grass managed and things of that sort to, like you said, right, to alleviate the physical risk of, of stuff burning through. I mean, it is going to burn at some point. It's just how bad is it and, you know, how Absolutely. good of a chance can you give yourself going into fire season? It's It's pretty trippy stuff. Yeah, and how well prepared are you and your family and where are you going to go yeah. and do you have a plan in place so that if and when it does happen, you can just enact the plan and away you go. And roll out. Heck yeah. Good stuff. So as you know, you know, we talked a little bit off air. Uh, our show's original focus, right, was helping the law enforcement military community grow through horsemanship. Uh, it's something near and dear to our hearts. 
Uh, we're excited to share stories with you today. I believe you're the first international service member that we've talked to. Um, so it'll be exciting to get into the lion's share of your story, your history, uh, being a very, very successful leader in the Australian Army. Uh, but let's start with a little bit of your early experiences with horses and, and your walk through life, and, and we'll get into the lion's share as it presents itself. Yeah, certainly. Um, I appreciate the chance to, to be on the show from the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up um, in a family of five, older sister, younger brother uh, in Adelaide down in South Australia. Um, we, I always had a, a love for horses as many young girls do, uh, you know, the posters plastered on the wall and the horse calendars and daydreaming, <laughs> you know, of what life's going to look like and you're just going to ride horses forever and you know, that gets shut down pretty quickly by your parents when they're like, there's no money in horses. Yeah, as I say, there's a bill to you know, pay associated with all of that. <laughs> there's a bill to pay. <laughs> um, but at that time when you, you know, you just have that naive curiosity yes. and anything's possible, which I think we lose touch with far too quickly. Um, but mum and dad bought uh, some property up in the Adelaide Hills and the the family dream was to build a beautiful house out there and that's where we were going to have horses and, you know, grow up living farm life. Um, so all five of us started lessons together at a little riding school called Templewood up in the Adelaide Hills uh, and absolutely loved it. Um, but unfortunately, things don't unfold as, as you think they're going to. And a number of years later, we uh, had to sell the farm and my dad chose to move over seas for work um, to try and support the family and sort of as a as a young girl you know my albeit somewhat naive vision of what my beautiful horse life was going to look like came crashing down um, but after a few years my sister and I were able to return to to regular lessons once a fortnight and unbeknownst to me until later my older sister actually sacrificed her fortnightly lessons so that I could have lessons weekly. Um, and I think it's one of those things, certainly with your siblings, you don't realize until you're all grown up just how much you have to be grateful for, yeah, for that's true. you know, what that, what they do for you. Um, many of which, you know, that the other person actually doesn't remember in the slightest, like my sister's like, Oh, okay. You're, oh, welcome. you're welcome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, uh, certainly, just like the highlight of my week going up for my for my riding lessons. My best friend rode with me as well. And, you know, I don't know if you guys get the saddle club over there, but it was sort of the big TV show and the books back in the day of mm -hmm. the saddle club. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just every girl's dream to, to live that life. Um, and then I became a, a trainee or a volunteer at my riding school, uh, which meant that I could just work from dawn till dusk every Saturday uh, and help run the riding school. And it was such a great way to learn. And initially, you know, as a volunteer, you obviously don't get paid. And um, I think these days people are so caught up in, uh, you know, if you have to be paid for everything that you do. And for yeah, me, it was the right. opposite. It was I had I didn't have my own horse, but I had 42 horses that I could ride at any time, help look after and learn just what was involved in keeping horses and, you know, they were, they did a little bit of breeding up there as well. And, um, 
and certainly the skills and just some good old-fashioned hard work at quite a young age is something that I'm definitely very grateful for now. So I worked at the writing school right through high school and it really helped keep me grounded um, as I went through, especially like my senior years. Uh, I'd be up at the crack of dawn, work at the writing school all day on a Saturday, waitress all night for weddings at the lodge up there, sleep up there with the owners and then I'd start doing like my homework for year 12 um, while I waited for my mum to finish playing the organ at church so she could come pick me up sort of at midday and um, that just it kept me sane right through through year 12 so I think it wasn't until later that I really can reflect back and appreciate just how much I got out of those opportunities at that young age but that's certainly where where my horse journey started Um, and then being the indecisive middle child, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. My younger brother always wanted a career in the military um, and my sister was a maths and physics extraordinaire and on scholarships and, you know, uh, astrophysics was a bit boring, so she pursued quantum physics instead. So and, not a competitive family uh, at all, right? Not a competitive no. family in the slightest. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I really was that indecisive middle child. Um I remember, you know, we had this like A3 piece of paper that we got from the career counsellor at school. My sister got it. She was a year ahead of me. And it had in teeny tiny little writing on both sides, like every job that you could do. And I spent hours like just going over and over this piece of paper. I'm like, there's nothing on here that I want to do for more than like a year or two. And I was so like distraught. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? life? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, like the ripe old age of like 15. Yeah. Um, and my mum and dad were both army reserves. That's how they met. But they um, finished up long before us kids were born. So it certainly wasn't a, a military family and there wasn't that military influence. Um, and it never really been something that I'd considered. I knew I wanted to get a degree, go to university, but had no idea what I wanted to study and just couldn't imagine doing the same job day in, day out for years on end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a somewhat cliched manner, um, and it's a credit to the recruiters that did come to our school, we had ADF recruiters um, rock up. I was at a private or girls' school, so there was not a lot of military influence at the school either. Um, and, you know, they told us about the Australian Defence Force Academy, which is similar to West Point, uh, where you can get a university degree while serving um, and then go on to the Royal Military College Duntroon uh, to earn your commission as an officer in the army. Um, I answered a question, got a free water bottle and literally went home that night and said, mum, dad, I'm going to Adfer and joining the army. And, you know, jaws dropped, you know, the indecisive middle child's like, what? Where did this come from? And (laughs) Sure enough, you know, I, I rang the number that was on my free water bottle and um, said, yep, I'm, I want to go to Adfer and join the army and went through all the selection process. And I think even for me at that stage, like not getting in just wasn't an option. Like it just didn't even um, cross my mind. I'm yeah, like, this is what yeah. I'm doing. That's where I'm going. Um, so I went through all the selection process in year 11 uh, and by the time I was sort of partway through year 12, I'd already been selected on a scholarship to uh, go to the Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, I was 
a very studious girl at school um, and like knew that I was going to get the marks that I needed to get in, which actually just relieved a whole lot of pressure because while mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. my peers were, you know, putting in university applications for this uni and that uni and trying to figure out what they wanted to do and highly competitive, I was actually able to just really sit back and enjoy year 12. Like not many yeah. people will probably say, yeah, I loved year 12. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I could just enjoy it for what it was knowing that at the end of the year, um, I'd be packing my bags and joining the army. So... 17, I was 17 when I finished year 12. Um, I did exactly that, packed up my bags, went through my um, appointment ceremony, got on a plane and flew to Canberra, um, where fortunately my sister was already up here at university. Um, not that I saw her much when I yeah, initially I say. joined, but I knew she was in vicinity. She was True. nearby, yes. um, which was comfort in itself. Um, and yeah, arrived with a whole lot of other, you know, wide-eyed teenagers from across the country and learnt how to put on a uniform and away we went. That is absolutely incredible that it, I mean, I know you talk about your parents being army reserves and, and your younger brother wanting a, a military career, but for you to jump on it after getting your free water bottle, I mean, that's a lot to take <laughs> in. That's a, that's a huge <laughs> life decision just to be like, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah. Yeah. When you put it like that, it seems a bit flippant, doesn't it? But, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I, I think my mum was quite worried about it in that she thought I was going to be too sensitive for the army, mm -hmm. um, especially being such a male dominated environment. Yes. And, yes. um, she obviously knows me very well and, um, you know, saw me as a very sort of empathetic and caring person and was worried that, you know, as soon as someone yelled at me that, you know, I just shrivel up and crawl into a corner. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but um, I think she saw me in one of the first breaks that we were able to have and I was maybe six months in and she just took one look at me and went, yeah, this is, this is what Ali's meant to do. She's, she's in her zone. This is made for her. Um, which I think put her mind at ease a lot um, to know that, you know, I was going to be okay. I, yeah. I could, I could hack it. <laughs> it's a, no, it's a huge, huge deal. And uh, I was talking to a friend the other day and his son just got back and uh, discharged from the United States Army after serving his time. And uh, I just, I couldn't even imagine having a child deployed or having a child in special forces, right? Where you're, you're in the thick of it. Right. Yeah. You were having those yeah. hard conversations with the other side uh, and you're actually spending time on a two way range, um, which is never comforting. But I could only imagine, right, having a, a 17 year old daughter coming home and saying, hey, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm off to the army. When? Oh, tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, OK, cool. You know, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. that's a huge life change for everybody to take on. And uh, even even anticipating that profession. Right. It's a culture shock. Most people going into those those service professions have these grandiose fantasy ideas of, oh, you know, I'm going to wear the uniform. I'm going to do this that, and the other. And it ain't until your first day at, at boot camp or an academy or something like that. And you got some D.I. screaming down your throat. Right. It's a huge eye-opening experience. So for you to stay so Absolutely. motivated and staying in the game for so long at such a young age, making the decision on a dime, you know, not with the <laughs> <laughs> the years of forethought, right? It's it's most commendable. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was certainly a twist. Yeah. <laughs> so many people saw coming. Let's talk about, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about it. You know, you talk, you, you reference being in a male dominated profession and, and yeah. being a female in, in the army and the military. What were some of those early experiences for you? And, and what were some of those early challenges? I mean, at face value, right? Just being a female in a, mil- a male dominated profession is difficult. Um, yeah, but you ended up in exactly. a, in a leadership, I guess, route, professional route, you know, how did that, how did that take place? Uh, so I think for me, when I first joined, um, and I, I will admit, as I reflect back that this did stay with me right throughout my career, um, my sort of mentality of where I was at was just do the best I can. Just yes. no matter what I'm doing, just do the best I can and hopefully it'll be good enough and I won't make a fool of myself and I'll survive, essentially. Um, in such a male-dominated environment, your physical abilities become very very much the centre of attention. Um, there's a lot of sort of kudos as well as judgment um, in in how physically fit you are and strong you are. And I certainly remember that for me and a lot of my other um, female friends who were going through the training with me, um, you know, going outfield was often quite daunting, not because we didn't know the tactics um, Mm -hmm. and were Mm -hmm. able to plan and make decisions, but because we were just so much physically smaller, um, you know, not wanting to feel like we were the one that was slowing everyone down. We were the one that was getting left behind. You know, we were the the weak link in the team. So it was all about not letting the team down, um, which, you know, as I look at it, it's certainly just as much of a, a concern for for the blokes as well, you know, the physical prestige yes. of I've got to be fit, I've got to be strong, and that's what – you know, defines me as, you know, a man. Um, But for us, it was certainly, you know, we just have to keep pushing, keep slugging it out. Um, So for me, that was definitely the the focus of just whatever we're doing, do the best I can, Um, apply myself to my studies, uh, try and be as organized as I could, you know, stay up all night for simple things like room inspections to make sure that it was one less thing that I might smoked. be picked yeah. up on. That's <laughs> yes. it. That's it. I will sacrifice sleep to make sure that like the window sills are dusted. The bed is perfectly made, you know, sleeping on the floor in your room so that you don't mess up your like iron sheets that are, yeah. <laughs> that are on the bed. Yes. Um, which I think those sorts of experiences, when you look back on them, like they, they become comical at the time. There is nothing funny about them in the slightest. It is survival. Um, but when you look back, it, it is actually quite amusing. And I think from some of those hardest experiences, particularly during your initial training or your boot camp phase, at the end of it, it just builds this camaraderie that I would struggle to find elsewhere um, in another organization or another career path with the exception of maybe like emergency services. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was certainly one part of it. Um, there was some pretty fascinating experiences um at that time women the arms corps weren't open to women in the army um nor they were just starting to open up when i eventually graduated from duntroon uh but we still went through exactly the same training going out field for you know weeks at a time um they'd always try and make sure there were you know two women in a section if there are enough 
women um, Candidates, in, yeah. in the class. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then That's it incredible. was interesting. Yeah. Can we just it get two? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if someone got injured, they'd be like, oh, well, we can't leave her on her own in the section. It's like, we're fine. Like, yeah. We'll I it. think there was a lot of – it was more a, a perceived issue than a real issue for yeah. us yeah. on the ground. Um, but I remember having a uh, an infantry sergeant as one of my directing staff outfield and, like, really professional bloke. Um, but for him, he admitted to us straight away um, that he'd never been outfield with women before. And now, you know, he had this section of, you know, there were about eight men and – to young ladies in the yeah. section and he was he was very professional and admitted to that uh, straight up to the two of us and said look what do you need <laughs> and a bit bit of tongue in cheek you sort of do it when you can while you're a cadet but it's always a risky risky path to play if you're gonna take yeah. the, um, you know mislead so on but you know we were we started off very seriously you know access to portaloos and you know, then we sort of became more and more far-fetched and said, you know, every 48 hours we get our um, a special food ration gets delivered to make sure we keep <laughs> our sugar levels up. And it's normally just like a small piece of chocolate cake or something like that, just, you know, because we the have to keep our sugar levels up. Yes. Absolutely. And then, and he was sort of like, he looked a bit perplexed at this stage. Yes, and I then agree. we Then we took it to the next level and said, you know, and each morning, you know, the... Um, we actually stay at the at the harbour and, um, you know, maintain the camp and we cook breakfast while the blokes go out and do the clearing patrols. And by that stage, he knew that we were taking the piss. And he sort of looked at the two of us. So he said, honestly, Sarge, just treat us like the blokes. Like, we yeah. are no different. Yeah. We are green. Um, you know, and it was, he just, he very seriously said, just please don't cry because I won't know what to do. Um, and it was like, we had a fantastic sort of field exercise and learned a hell of a lot from him. Um, but it's interesting to look at it now that I think he actually, be, despite being, you know, a very experienced infantry sergeant, that would have been quite a confronting situation for him as well. Um, but there are a few sort of examples like that. Um, one of the biggest challenges in that training was um, with another uh, member of staff, uh, who it was almost like he he found it difficult to comprehend that myself and the other um, girl in my section on that particular occasion when we were learning um, one of our weapons training uh, modules, that we were picking it up very quickly um, in terms of the, the mechanics of the firearm and how it operated and, you know, we had our drills mm -hmm. down pat mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Um, and one of the blokes in our section was just really struggling. Like it wasn't the natural way that he learnt and was just really struggling. And we could see how challenging it was for this. Again, he was um, a seasoned infantry soldier to sort of be able to comprehend that, well, the women can get it. Why can't, why can't the bloke? Um, so that was, it was really fascinating. Um, and I've heard since, you know, anecdotally um, from a number of, you know, the weapons instructors that uh, culturally you might think that 
the men coming through would be far more comfortable with, you know, the firearms and learning how to shoot and all those sorts of things. Um, and they certainly have far more exposure to it, I think, growing up with computer games and um they were certainly far better at the tab data and knowing the names of the different firearms and being able to identify them from the picture. And us girls were like, I've got no, it's a gun. Um, (laughs) It's a big one or a small one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It goes bang. Um, You know, but I think because of that, we, we acknowledged that it was very new for us and we just listened and were really willing to be taught, um, which actually made us very receptive of that instruction and of advice on of how to improve our firing position. And um, I think we sort of, we definitely had a different dynamic. Um, another example that really stands out to me where I think I started to finally acknowledge that um, despite sort of your own insecurities as a woman in that environment, that we actually had far more to offer than I think we gave ourselves credit for. Um, At one point in our training, uh, we underwent a food and sleep deprivation exercise that all army officer cadets go through. It's like a rite of passage um, to really prove to yourself just how much more you're capable of than you think you are. Yeah, ain't that the Uh, truth? Absolutely. And, you know, when you look back at it, people just think it's absurd when you explain, you know, the actual um, exercise of very little food, you know, 24 hours worth of food, but over the space of a week and, you know, two hours sleep if you're lucky per 24 hour period and all those sorts of things. Um, But it was fascinating to see how we responded physiologically and I think all those things that a lot of women are very self-conscious about you know the extra bit of weight on your hips and your thighs Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know no matter how many sit-ups you do you're not going to have a six-pack and um you know the blokes make it look so easy in PT just like whipping around and um (laughs) you know as soon as we were put in that environment where it goes right back to you know the basics of survival our survival natural physiological survival kicked in. So a lot of, you know, the biggest, strongest, fittest blokes, as soon as they weren't getting the fuel in, they really struggled. Physically, they dropped a lot of kilos. Um, Their brains weren't operating as quickly and efficiently. Like they really struggled mentally with the lack of sleep. Um, But the lack of food, they just, their bodies weren't used to it. Whereas us, you know, slightly pudgy women we just went into survival mode and our body had plenty of stores and we all mentally went awesome this is like a a forced diet just think how slim i'm gonna be at the end of the week you know (laughs) which is really really quite Uh, funny when you look back on it it is true Um, it is funny and we the majority of us we coped perfectly fine without food like it did not bother us in the slightest you'd have like one muesli bar over 24 hours and you're like oh i think i'll only have half i'm not really hungry yeah. <laughs> um but to see how our bodies were actually able to thrive in that environment and mentally we were able to stay quite alert everyone reaches their point um there's no bones about that but we were actually able to function to quite a high level um, and we didn't drop a lot of weight, um, much to our disgust. In certain, I was going to say, contrary to hopes and goals, right? That's it, absolutely. We're like, yeah, the blokes have lost 10 kilos in a week and we're like, I lost 500 grams. Like, <laughs> where are my abs? Um, which, 
I mean, goes to show a far bigger concern of society um, and images of what it means to be, you know, attractive and, you know, fit, um, which are certainly very warped. Uh, but it, I think it gave us a far better appreciation for for what we had to offer and it really levelled the playing field um, in that sense. It was a fascinating experience. You bring up several great points and using the deprivation exercise kind of by way of example and, I mean, even going back to, to the weapons demonstration, I think a lot of the perceived successes, right, it, it comes from preconceived notions of, well, men hunt, men play video games, men are more aggressive, right? They should know weapons and weaponry. And and if they've never had any exposure to it, should they? Right? And then Absolutely. you talk about you talk about uh, going into this deprivation exercise, right? And there's these preconceived notions that, you know, it's 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 great to be in shape and it's great to be fit and everybody wants to be slim and athletic and well built and things of that sort, you know. But in going through service professions, right? Emergency services, first responders, military, uh, a lot of this basic training and even specialized training, right? It strips all those preconceived notions to nothing. And it really Absolutely. helps the individual understand what are you about? What value do you bring to the table? And you poke fun at women having extra stores and being a little pudgy. But I mean, physiologically, that's a huge advantage. That's a Absolutely. huge advantage in the in the field, right? When guys are losing their cool three and four and five days in, and you guys are cruising, the females are cruising six and seven days in, and still have their wherewithal and their ability to make decisions and cognitive decisions and decisions that make sense. Um, yes. It's a big deal, right? So in understanding the team dynamic, and, and you said it very early on, right, that you set a lot of goals and you had a lot of success because you tried to do your best and you tried to do it for the team, put yourself, right? below the team's success. And that's what people need to understand is that we all have our strengths in this world and we all have our weaknesses. And Absolutely. just because I'm the world's greatest whatever doesn't mean I don't have value in another field or doesn't mean I need help or doesn't mean I need to lean on somebody. But we oftentimes get caught up in these preconceived notions that because this is my title or because this is my role or because this is my horse or my discipline, I have to be whatever is portrayed. And it's not that, you know, and, and that's been the fortunate thing for me is that in my experience in life, I've been humbled absolutely to the core and it makes you a lot more grounded and a lot more comfortable with strengths and weaknesses. And when you are comfortable with those weaknesses, that's when you can really start looking towards progress and start looking towards success because you're not fearful of the insecurity. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Could not agree more. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly for for a lot of the early part of my career. Um, so I've been in for nearly fifteen years now, um, but at least the first decade, I was definitely almost consumed by um, a feeling of the imposter syndrome, especially in such a male-dominated environment. And for me, I really struggled to acknowledge my own accomplishments for what they were and what I did have to bring to the table. Um, in my mind, I was just working really hard to to survive in that environment and in 
it was almost like I was trying to maintain a facade and that as soon as I, if I slacked off at all or took a breath or admitted I didn't know something, that it would all come crumbling down and people would realise that I I didn't belong or that I wasn't a competent leader. Um, and it took it took a lot to, to work through that. Now, there was certainly some some benefits from that um, in that I did work exceedingly hard and it was never from a place of competitiveness against my peers. Um, it was just from what can I control? I can control how hard I work, how much I study, how much I train. Um, that is what I can control. I can't control how well someone else performs. Um, but through that approach, uh, I did perform exceedingly well and was the top Army graduate from the Australian Defence Force Academy in my class, um, was the top graduate from the Royal Military College Duntroon when I graduated there and received my commission. So I think we had a class of, I think it was 147. Wow, and that's at the, at the start of the 12 months, we had 25 women and we graduated with 12 women out of that 147. Um, so throughout the year, I had no idea sort of where I was sitting against mm -hmm. my peers. It mm -hmm. was just, it was just survival. Just yeah. again, do yeah. what I can, get through, get through, get through. Um, and so there were certainly benefits to that mentality and that headspace that I was in. Um, and the same occurred when I then went on to do my um, officer's basic course as a signals corps officer, so in communications, um, and had the same mentality. I was like, okay, I'm I'm not very technical. I don't have a lot of technical background. I have to study, 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 study. Um, and the result was that I, I topped the course with um, – was awarded both the awards for the course. Oh, but wow. again, for me, I was yeah. just – just doing what I could to make sure that I didn't fail. Yeah. Um, so some very positive outcomes, but coming from quite a negative place, a negative sort of motivation. Now, that hard work absolutely led to some incredible opportunities, uh, particularly as a junior officer, you know, multiple deployments to different theatres of operation um, straight off the bat you know, and in charge of my own team, uh, a lot of autonomy um, and in charge of a team that was predominantly men as well and most of them were older than me. I think it took about 12 months after I graduated before I actually had a soldier in my troop who was younger than me. That's uh, incredible. Which brings a whole yes. different dynamic. Yes. Um, but I think when you're caught in that headspace of feeling like an imposter and not able to acknowledge what you do bring to the table, it's only going to last for so long. Eventually, you're going to break. Yeah. Um, and when you break, it's, I won't say catastrophic, but a day or two of rest isn't going to, isn't going to get you yeah. back on track. No, yeah. no. So, um, and I hear, I hear a lot of people do struggle with that. Um, and I think a lot of that comes back to sort of these societal expectations of what, what success looks like, what it looks like to be a good leader, to be a good officer. And we then internalize all of that and put this pressure on ourselves to try and be someone that we're not, um, just because we believe that 
that's what success looks like. Uh, certainly over the years, um, having been through those challenges myself, um, hindsight's a beautiful thing as always. Yes, um, absolutely. But I, I think it's, I now have this mentality that every challenge brings with it an opportunity to learn and to grow and every challenging experience that I've been through, both in my personal life, but also in a military context and as a, as a woman, as a leader in that environment, if through me experiencing that, I can offer some sort of guidance or assistance to even just one other person, then it makes it a positive experience and it makes it worthwhile and it gives you something to offer other people. And I think that that approach can be applied to life in general. Um, everyone's going through their own journey and their own struggles and you never truly know what someone else is going through and nor does anyone else know truly the extent of what you're dealing with. Um, and I think we're so quick to cast judgment on others and on whether they are successful or not. Um, all just often from our own insecurities and projecting them onto other people and making people wrong. Um, I could not agree. I could not agree more. I mean, that's been my experience is that it's interesting when you see leadership and we'll take the military, for example, uh, which obviously is as a direct reflection and, and parallels experience to, to the law enforcement community, right? When you look at a leader at face value, a lot of this stuff is how many schools have you been to? How many classes have you been to? Right. Yeah. All the different ranks and things that you've carried. And then you actually get into field operation mode, right? Where boots mm -hmm. are on the ground and you watch these individuals and this is no fault to them. You watch these individuals that have huge resumes on paper and, they couldn't lead their way out of a wet paper bag mm. in an actual real world deployment scenario scene, whatever it may be, you know, and, and I've seen in my career that the people that chase the resume for the purposes of, I guess, self-indulgence, right? Yes. That, yep. that is not, that is not, to me, that is not leadership, right? Leaders are the people that, that care and, the greatest leaders that I've had in my career are people that made me feel empowered, right? Yes. Regardless if I was or not, regardless if I was capable, competent, <laughs> whatever. Uh, they made me believe that when we stepped off, it was game time and we were going to be successful. It is what it is, right? Yes. And what I've seen throughout throughout my career and the dynamics of, of my career is that those true leaders have the passion and the fire for the people that they serve. And as they go up the food chain... Uh, Oftentimes, the selfish leader will think, okay, more people now serve me, right? All the subordinates now serve me. You are my minions. You do what I, what I say. But the mm. true leaders, the true leaders look at it in a completely inverted position, right? They now serve more people in more facets, in more aspects, whether it be through their, yes. their power, their influence, uh, financially, whatever it may be, right? Um, but mm. it's crazy to see. It's crazy to see how leadership works because well, there's been plenty of people in, in my journey that they don't have anything that supports a quote unquote formal leadership resume. But when yes. it hits the fan, these are the people that you ride with, hands down, 110%, right? Absolutely. It's incredible. And I think my, my, oh, the highlights of my career have actually been when 
I haven't been in command positions. Uh, so on paper, with our rank structure, I am not directly in command of subordinates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to see, I think leadership certainly sits very separate to command. And the the most enjoyable parts of my career have been when I haven't been in the command position. So you don't have the legal authority and that direct command over subordinates. But you can always be a leader regardless of your rank, regardless of your skill set, regardless of your age or your gender. Mm-hmm. I think it's that ability to influence others. Mm-hmm. And often it requires more leadership to be able to have that influence when you can't fall back on on the command and the rank structure. Um, one of so the highlight of my career um, was when I was posted back to the Royal Military College Duntroon and the job that I was in, um, I was I wasn't in charge per se of people on an organizational chart. I didn't have, you know, my my sergeant or my warrant officer and my corporals and soldiers working for me. Um, but I was responsible for the standards and discipline of the entire college. So that was at any stage up to close to a thousand cadets. Um, and also the entire staff body as well. Uh, so in the history of Duntroon, um, which was established in 1911, I was only the second female to ever be selected for that role um, up till now. And it was a, a huge privilege. Um, but I think it really gave me the opportunity to identify what my own authentic leadership style was. I think we're exposed to so many people throughout our lives and careers and you you were drawn to some people and you see others that you just don't resonate with. And from that, as you go through this path, you find, okay, what is it about this person that really draws me to them? Is it the way they act? Is it the way they treat others? Is it their decisiveness? Is it their charisma? And then the people that you don't resonate with Um, This was something that I'd always encourage the cadets to do is don't just dismiss them as, you know, they're they're not a good leader or I don't like them. Say, what is it about their leadership style? It doesn't mean they're wrong, but what is it about their leadership style that you don't want to emulate and really take it on yourself to find, you know, collect these little pieces of information and these examples to help grow into your own um, own capacity as a leader. So this role that I was doing, um, very high tempo, you know, on call 24-7 for the entire year, the first point of call if anything went wrong. Um, so Just the stress and the pressure of understanding that my phone might ring at any minute is enough. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And when it rang at nighttime, you knew it was never good news. Yeah, you're like, oh, um, gosh. Yeah, but even that, like, yes, it was highly stressful. It it sort of has uh, now, like, nothing concerns me, nothing surprises yes. me. You're like, okay, we just, whatever happens, whatever is on the other end of that phone, you deal with it. Yeah, we'll address it. Um, absolutely. But so that position, um, you're basically... You, you. That role is there to emulate what it means to be an army officer for the cadets. They should aspire to 
be like you. So no, no pressure, no pressure at all. Not at all, none um, whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, you're so just the model me, of the future of a country's military, it. right? No that's big deal. It. No pressure. Um, so for me, I was very cognizant going into that job that it is – you have a role that you have to do. Um, you have outcomes that you have to achieve in the form of standards and discipline for all these junior cadets to set them up for their careers. Now, due to the nature of that job, it has often been filled by very competent, you know, alpha men from arms corps. And that's just, um, you know, very competent individuals so in no way detracts from them and they did that role highly effectively in their leadership style now i could see that one i had a job that i needed to achieve but after um the number of years in my career so i'd been in for about a decade by then i was also determined to remain true to myself um which had been something that i'd struggled with and sort of lost touch with um over those 10 years of losing touch with my femininity. I'm certainly, you wouldn't describe me as a girly girl. I don't think I've ever been described as a girly girl in my life. (laughs) Um, And again, that is nothing against those women who do really embrace that femininity naturally and that's, that's who they are. But I think I had gone far too much the other way of, you know, even being described as, oh, we're going, we're having a boys' night out. Oh, but Ali will be there. Oh, that doesn't count. Like, she's one of the boys. That's and it's funny. like, I love the team dynamic, but I'm not a bloke. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, um, and to I had lost touch internally with my own femininity. And that with it in itself comes a whole lot of insecurities and self-doubt and lack of self-worth when you see a lot of the wives and girlfriends of all the people I work with and they're these gorgeous women and highly competent and wearing stunning clothes and, you know, they, they've got the nails and um, highly fashionable and I'm dressed like the boys every day yeah. and, yeah. you know, slogging it out in the gym every day and had really lost touch with my own femininity and that sense of inner beauty. Um, so I um, – oh, well, I'm quite. I'm happy to go there because it's quite a um, a unique approach that I took. This was before I did this job, um, and it's something that a lot of a lot of women have said. Wow, that's really courageous, um, and it's it's an interesting sort of example of where courage can be something completely different to what we'd normally define courage or see courage as, sort of from Hollywood and you know storming the machine gun pit. Um, But I had lost so much touch with who I was as a woman that I'd actually, I'd won um, a photo shoot at, uh, you know, the local show, put, you know, an entry in a drawer and, hey, I I won a photo shoot. I'd never had a photo shoot done in my life before. and was at a pretty low place in my life with relationships as well as, um, you know, my own Mm self-esteem. And... I I rang, you know, the, the company. Um, I'd been having a look on their website and I actually said to them, like, they're like, oh, what sort of, you know, tell us a bit about yourself. And they got to know me and understand, you know, that I was in the military. And I said, like, I want to I want to feel beautiful. I don't see myself as beautiful. I don't see myself as feminine. And I actually, I probably should have had, a, you know, a shot of whiskey before doing that. But <laughs> I had, um, I... 
Hey, thanks for riding along with another episode of Let Freedom Reign podcast and being part of our freedom family. If you want to provide greater support of this show, visit patreon.com forward slash let freedom reign podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash let freedom reign podcast. And reign is spelled R-E-I-N. There you can provide a donation at a cost less than the fancy cup of coffee you're probably holding to help us produce free weekly content. For collaborations, to book us as a guest for your next event, or to make guest recommendations, email us at info.lfrpodcast at gmail.com. For the most up-to-date information on Let Freedom Reign, visit our Facebook and Instagram page at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Additionally, you can find us on Twitter at Let Freedom Reign underscore. We cannot thank you enough for being our most loyal listeners, and we'll see you on the next one.